Chapter 8 of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter 8. Consisting of From Cape Pillar into the Pacific. Driven by a tempest towards Cape Horn, Captain Slocum's greatest sea adventure, reaching the strait again by way of Coburn Channel, some savages find the carpet tax, danger from firebrands, a series of fierce willy wars, again sailing westward. It was the 3rd of March when the spray sailed from Port Tamar direct for Cape Pillar, with the wind from the northeast, which I fervently hoped might hold till she cleared the land. But there was no such good luck in store. It soon began to rain and thicken in the northwest, boding no good. The spray neared Cape Pillar rapidly, and nothing loath, plunged into the Pacific Ocean at once, taking her first bath of it in the gathering storm. There was no turning back, even had I wished to do so, for the land was now shut out by the darkness of night. The wind freshened, and I took in a third reef. The sea was confused and treacherous. In such a time as this the old fisherman prayed, "'Remember, Lord, my ship is so small,' and thy sea is so wide. I saw now only the gleaming crests of waves. They showed white teeth while the sloop balanced over them. Everything for an offing, I cried, and to this end I carried on all the sail she would bear. She ran all night with a free sheet, but on the morning of March the 4th the wind shifted to south-west, then back suddenly to north-west, and blew with terrific force. The spray stripped of her sails, then bore off under bare poles. No ship in the world could have stood up against so violent a gale. Knowing that this storm might continue for many days, and that it would be impossible to work back to the westward along the coast outside of Tierra del Fuego, there seemed nothing to do but to keep on and go east about after all. Anyhow, for my present safety, the only course lay in keeping her before the wind. And so she drove southwest, as though about to round the horn, while the waves rose and fell and bellowed their never-ending story of the sea. But the hand that held these held also the spray. She was running now with a reefed forestaysail, the sheets flat amidships, I paid out two long ropes to steady her course, and to break combing seas astern, and I lashed the helm amidship. In this trim she ran before it, shipping never a sea. Even while the storm raged at its worst, my ship was wholesome and noble. My mind as to her seaworthiness was put to ease for A. When all had been done that I could do for the safety of the vessel, I got into the fore-scuttle between seas, and prepared a pot of coffee over a wood-fire, and made a good Irish stew. Then, as before, and afterwards on the spray, I insisted on warm meals. 
In the tide-race off Cape Pillar, however, where the sea was marvellously high, uneven, and crooked, my appetite was slim, and for a time I postponed cooking. Confidentially, I was seasick. The first day of the storm gave the spray her actual test in the worst sea that Cape Horn or its wild regions could afford and in no part of the world could a rougher sea be found than at this particular point, namely, off Cape Pillar, the grim sentinel of the Horn. Further offshore, while the sea was majestic, there was less apprehension of danger. There the spray rode, now like a bird on the crest of a wave, and now like a waif deep down in the hollow between seas, and so she drove on. Whole days passed, counted as other days, but with always a thrill, yes, of delight. On the fourth day of the gale, rapidly nearing the pitch of Cape Horn, I inspected my chart and pricked off the course and distance to Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands, where I might find my way and refit, when I saw through a rift in the clouds a high mountain about seven leagues away on the port beam. The fierce edge of the gale by this time had blown off, and I had already bent a square-sail on the boom in place of the mainsail, which was torn to rags. I hauled in the trailing ropes, hoisted this awkward sail reefed, the forestaysail being already set, and under this sail brought her at once on the wind, heading for the land, which appeared as an island in the sea. So it turned out to be, though not the one I had supposed. I was exultant over the prospect of once more entering the Strait of Magellan and beating through again into the Pacific, for it was more than rough on the outside coast of Tierra del Fuego. It was indeed a mountainous sea. When the sloop was in the fiercest squalls, with only the reefed forestaysail set, even that small sail shook her from keelsom to truck when it shivered by the leech. Had I harboured the shadow of a doubt for her safety, it would have been that she might spring a leak in the garboard at the heel of the mast. But she never called me once to the pump. Under pressure of the smallest sail I could set, she made for the land like a racehorse and steering her over the crests of the waves so that she might not trip was nice work. I stood at the helm now and made the most of it. Night closed in before the sloop reached the land, leaving her feeling the way in pitchy darkness. I saw breakers ahead before long. At this I wore ship and stood offshore, but was immediately startled by the tremendous roaring of breakers again ahead and on the lee-bow. This puzzled me, for there should have been no broken water where I supposed myself to be. I kept off a good bit, then wore round, but, finding broken water there also, threw her head again offshore. In this way, among dangers, I spent the rest of the night. Hail and sleet in the fierce squalls cut my flesh till the blood trickled over my face. But what of that? It was daylight, and the sloop was in the midst of the Milky Way of the sea, which is northwest of Cape Horn, and it was the white breakers of a huge sea over sunken rocks which had threatened to engulf her through the night. 
It was Fury Island I had sighted and steered for, and what a panorama was before me now, and all around. It was not the time to complain of a broken skin. What could I do but fill away among the breakers, and find a channel between them, now that it was day? Since she had escaped the rocks through the night, surely she would find her way by daylight. This was the greatest sea adventure of my life. God knows how my vessel escaped. The sloop at last reached inside of small islands that sheltered her in smooth water. Then I climbed the mast to survey the wild scene astern. The great naturalist Darwin looked over this seascape from the deck of the Beagle and wrote in his journal, Any landsman seeing the Milky Way would have nightmare for a week. He might have added, or seaman, as well. The spray's good luck followed fast. I discovered, as she sailed among a labyrinth of islands, that she was in the Coburn Channel, which leads into the Strait of Magellan at a point opposite Cape Froward, and that she was already passing Thieves' Bay, suggestively named. And at night, March 8, behold, she was at anchor in a snug cove at the turn. Every heartbeat on the spray now counted thanks. Here I pondered on the events of the last few days, and, strangely enough, instead of feeling rested from sitting or lying down, I now began to feel jaded and worn. But a hot meal of venison stew soon put me right so that I could sleep. As drowsiness came on, I sprinkled the deck with tacks, and then I turned in, bearing in mind the advice of my old friend Samblick, that I was not to step on them myself. I saw to it that not a few of them stood business end up. For when the spray passed Thieves' Bay, two canoes had put out and followed in her wake, and there was no disguising the fact any longer that I was alone. Now it is well known that one cannot step on a tack without saying something about it. A pretty good Christian can whistle when he steps on the commercial end of a carpet tack. A savage will howl and claw the air. And that was just what happened that night about twelve o'clock, while I was asleep in the cabin, where the savages thought they had me, sloop and all, but changed their minds when they stepped on deck, for then they thought that I or somebody else had them. I had no need of a dog. They howled like a pack of hounds. I had hardly use for a gun. They jumped pell-mell, some into their canoes and some into the sea, to cool off, I suppose, and there was a deal of free language over it as they went. I fired several guns when I came on deck, to let the rascals know that I was at home, and then I turned in again, feeling sure I should not be disturbed any more by people who left in so great a hurry. The Fuegians, being cruel, are naturally cowards. They regard a rifle with superstitious fear. The only real danger one could see that might come from their quarter would be from allowing them to surround one within bowshot, or to anchor within range where they might lie in ambush. As for their coming on deck at night, even if I had not put tacks about, I could have cleared them off by shots from the cabin and hold. 
I always keep a quantity of ammunition within reach in the hold, and in the cabin, and in the forepeak, so that retreating to any of these places I could hold the fort simply by shooting up through the deck. Perhaps the greatest danger to be apprehended was from the use of fire. Every canoe carries fire. Nothing is thought of that, for it is their custom to communicate by smoke signals. The harmless brand that lies smouldering in the bottom of one of their canoes might be ablaze in one's cabin if he were not on the alert. The port captain of Sandy Point warned me particularly of this danger. Only a short time before, they had fired a Chilean gunboat by throwing brands in through the stern windows of the cabin. The spray had no openings in the cabin or deck except two scuttles, and these were guarded by fastenings which could not be undone without waking me if I were asleep. On the morning of the ninth, after a refreshing rest and a warm breakfast, and after I had swept the deck of tacks. I got out what spare canvas there was on board and began to sew the pieces together in the shape of a peak for my square mainsail, the tarpaulin. The day, to all appearances, promised fine weather and light winds, but appearances in Tierra del Fuego do not always count. While I was wondering why no trees grew on the slope abreast of the anchorage, half minded to lay by the sail making and land with my gun for some game, And to inspect a white boulder on the beach near the brook, a williwar came down with such terrific force as to carry the spray with two anchors down like a feather out of the cove and away into deep water. No wonder trees did not grow on the side of that hill. Great Boreas, a tree would need all its roots to hold on against such a furious wind. From the cove to the nearest land to Lourdes was a long drift, however. And I had ample time to weigh both anchors before the sloop came near any danger. And so no harm came of it. I saw no more savages that day or the next. They probably had some sign by which they knew of the coming willy wars. At least they were wise in not being afloat even on the second day, for I had no sooner gotten to work at sail making again after the anchor was down than the wind, as on the day before, picked the sloop up. And flung her seaward with a vengeance, anchor and all, as before. This fierce wind, usual to the Magellan country, continued on through the day and swept the sloop by several miles of steep bluffs and precipices overhanging a bold shore of wild and uninviting appearance. I was not sorry to get away from it, though in doing so it was no Elysian shore to which I shaped my course. I kept on sailing in hope, since I had no choice but to go on, heading across for St. Nicholas Bay, where I had cast anchor February 19. It was now the 10th of March. Upon reaching the bay the second time, I had circumnavigated the wildest part of desolate Tierra del Fuego. But the spray had not yet arrived at St. Nicholas. And by the merest accident, her bones were saved from resting there when she did arrive. The parting of a staysail sheet in a williwar, when the sea was turbulent and she was plunging into the storm, brought me forward to see instantly a dark cliff ahead and breakers so close under the bows that I felt surely lost, and in my thoughts cried, 
Is the hand of fate against me after all, leading me in the end to this dark spot? I sprang aft again, unheeding the flapping sail, and threw the wheel over, expecting, as the sloop came down into the hollow of a wave, to feel her timbers smash under me on the rocks. But at the touch of her helm she swung clear of the danger, and in the next moment she was in the lee of the land. It was a small island in the middle of the bay for which the sloop had been steering, and which she made with such unerring aim as nearly to run it down. Further along the bay was the anchorage, which I managed to reach. But before I could get the anchor down, another school carried the sloop and whirled her round like a top and carried her away altogether to leeward of the bay. Still farther to leeward was a great headland, and I bore off for that. This was retracing my course towards Sandy Point, for the gale was from the southwest. I had the sloop soon under good control, however, and in a short time rounded to under the lee of a mountain, where the sea was as smooth as a mill-pond, and the sails flapped and hung limp while she carried her way close in. Here, I thought, I would anchor and rest till morning, the depth being eight fathoms very close to the shore. But it was interesting to see, as I let go the anchor, that it did not reach the bottom before another willy-war struck down from the mountain and carried the sloop off faster than I could pay out cable. Therefore, instead of resting, I had to man the windlass, and heave up the anchor with fifty fathoms of cable hanging up and down in deep water. This was in that part of the strait called Famine Reach. Dismal Famine Reach! On the sloop's crab windlass I worked the rest of the night, thinking how much easier it was for me when I could say, Do that thing or the other, and now doing it all myself. But I hove away and sang the old chants that I sang when I was a sailor. Within the last few days I had passed through much, and was now thankful that my state was no worse. It was daybreak when the anchor was at the hawse, by this time the wind had gone down, and Cat's paws took the place of Williwaw's, while the sloop drifted slowly towards Sandy Point. She came within sight of ships at anchor in the roads, and I was more than half-minded to put in for new sails. But the wind coming out from the north-east, which was fair for the other direction, I turned the prow of the spray westwards once more for the Pacific, to traverse a second time the second half of my course through the strait. End of chapter 8 Recording by Alan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk